Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to Evening Dhamma. I think everything's working fine. Tonight we're looking at the aggregates and the senses. So there are two distinct sections, but I'm going to put them together because it's interesting to talk about them in the context of each other, I think. So again, taken at face value, these are, well, the, the aggregates are just the four satipatthana, so there's nothing new in that sense. But in in regards to the four or in the in the um, context of the four foundations of mindfulness, it's about picking one of the the aggregates and focusing on it as as though it were a distinct entity, which to some extent it is. Um, But in the context, in the in in this context, now we're looking at the five aggregates as an experience. So we're trying to see, or we're coming to see through the practice, that at each moment of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking, there arise the five aggregates. Uh, so, at seeing, there is the f the eye and the, the 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 light. That's the physical aspect. Physical in the sense of of um, well, in the sense of physical, I guess. I mean, it's not it's not like light is something hard that you can connect with, but light is physical, right? The, fa the feeling is a neutral feeling when you first see, but then there, of course, are happy feelings or unhappy feelings based on what you see or how you interpret the, the seeing. Uh, sanya is the, the, the third aggregate, is uh, when you recognize what you see. You see a cat or you see a dog or you see a friend or you see an enemy. You recognize them. Sankara is what you think about what you see. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it me? Is it mine? And vijnana is just the knowledge of seeing. Vijnana is the awareness now I'm seeing. So the, the seeing of a cat or a dog, that you see it, that's seeing. I like to open the doors and strange animals walk in. At night it's nice to get the breeze going. Of course in Thailand the dogs and cats and chickens would all come and listen to the Dhamma as well. It's okay if she wants to listen. Maybe she'll learn something. Animals can, in the commentary of the Satipatthana Sutta, 
you know, the the first thing the Buddha says is satta nang visuddhiya, and the commentary says it. The purification of beings doesn't just mean humans. Animals can, to some extent, purify their minds. Uh, so, some, so those are the five aggregates. That's seeing, at hearing, they're the same thing. The sound and the, how you feel about it, recognizing it, thinking about it, and just experiencing it. Um, and so the idea here is to see moments, to start to see how reality is, is complicated, but it's not so complicated as to give rise to a being, meaning ultimately reality can be decomposed, uh, deconstructed into building blocks, things that actually exist. And when you look at what it actually exists, there's no being. Being is something theoretical, a person, a, a place, a thing. Maybe in some sense it exists, but that existence is meaningless. It's not useful in an ultimate sense. Uh, it doesn't present itself. It's useful only in a practical sense. It's useful for me to think of these experiences as as me you know and certain experiences as this person or that person when i see the dog it's useful for me to think of that as a dog practically speaking in the ultimate sense that's not useful it's misleading because when you see in terms of a being um then you're you're missing the the impermanence and the change and so when we think of, you know, talked about this before, when you think of people, uh, it gives rise to all sorts of problems. When you start to think of the person being like this or being like that, and then them not being according to your desires. Ego and, and in general, self-view, the concept of thinking I am or this is me or that is mine, has so many problems, right? Possessiveness. Uh, but but just the general inflexibility because it's out of tune with reality there's nothing wrong with believing in a self let's put it that way suppose I mean this is heretical but suppose I believe uh, that there is a self I believe that I have a soul or something like that as long as that has no relationship to how I understand reality or I understand experience, right? I don't know if that's a proper thing to say because, I mean, the problem is as soon as you have it, it, it of course does impact how you look at reality. But um, but what I mean by that is is I do have a self and you have a self. Practically speaking, that's true. Conventionally speaking, I exist, you exist, but it's conventional. If we didn't say things like that, then... What would it mean? You know, oh, this conglomeration of experiences is walking now. Is, I'm is here. I, this, this conglomeration of experiences has arrived. You can't really say that. To talk about people as though they exist, and that's fine. The Buddha did as well, and he said this is a convention. Conventionally speaking, the being exists, and we use that. We use those th terms conventionally. 
It's just that you begin to appreciate a different way of looking at reality. You begin to appreciate the phenomenological nature of, of reality and how, it, how that is dominant. Um, it, it is superior in so many ways, well, in, in most important ways, to a conceptual, theoretical, impersonal physics, physics or physics, uh, materialist, physicalist-based view of reality. That things exist independent of experiences and so on, or, or you know, conjecturing on those those ideas. Now, this is foreign to us because we use these conjectures so often, you know. Uh, I conjecture that that dog still exists, even though it's not uh, here in the room with us. Now that's useful. Though it's useful to to think like that. So we think, wow, you know, all of our discoveries and all of our knowledge as a human race, it's all based on this sort of physicalist view of, of things existing outside of our experience. Where would we get to if we just focused on experience? And that's really kind of the point, is where would we get to? Well, we'd, we'd, we'd get to freedom, freedom from the infinitude of, uh, physical reality I mean the, the con possibilities are endless uh, and that's what's so in enticing and intoxicating ultimately I mean most of us most people most of the time are content with sensual desire we're content with attachment to food and drink and sex and music and entertainment but once in a while, and and not to put any, everyone down, because you know most people who listen to these talks are, are have gone beyond that, and most of us at one life or another get beyond that, and we begin to think of the potential and the possibilities, and that's the most difficult fetter. You know, sensuality is something that's actually relatively easy in the scheme of things. Now it's it's much more important immediately because it's so gross and coarse and unrefined but there are much more refined pleasures and desires desire for becoming and so in, in the context of this, the senses here the Buddha says not only do you understand the eye and, and sight uh, and, and visions but you understand the fetters that arise and so I just posted on Facebook what I'm going to go over here the ten fetters we have this this list of ten fetters that the Buddha taught and um, you know the commentary talks about how this arises how this can arise through seeing when you see something how can fetter how do how do you become fettered how are the different ways we become caught up and attached to seeing not just sensuality the first one is sensuality this is the fetter, you see something and it's beautiful, you hear something and it's musical, you smell something and it's um, pleasant, tastes delicious, a positive feeling or a positive sensation, something itaramana we call, desirable.
So when we take delight in the pleasant sense objects. The second one is uh, resentment, and resentment of course is the opposite. And we've gone over this. But at the moment of seeing, that's when it rises. I mean the point here is that this is where these things arise. They don't just magically appear and suddenly you're angry. Or suddenly you want something. It's triggered. You see or you hear and... and it reminds you, or the sanya arises and tells you, hey, that's that person who yelled at you before. And then we get angry. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of the five aggregates arising at the senses. So the sense base, the, the, the experience arises, and then there's the five aggregates. And they create clinging, create experience and, and reaction to the experience. Pride arises. Pride arises based on your, based usually on the, the the liking and the disliking. It's an extrapolation or it's an extension of that, where you you think of uh, you think of it in terms of the self. Could be possessiveness, and then you feel proud. Uh, could be well identification of some sort. This is so. It's either mine or it's me or it's myself, and this gives rise to conceit. You have the idea of, well, this thing of mine is good, and that makes me good, or this thing of mine is bad. could be the body, for example. My body is beautiful, that's good. My body is healthy, that's good. My body is ugly, that's bad. My body is unhealthy, that's bad. Buddhists often feel kind of ashamed when they're sick because they think of it as bad karma. And uh, that's unfortunate, I think. I mean, it, it is something for us to, to uh, accept and understand, but it's so complicated why we get to where we are. And we are so much a mix of so many different things that it's not something we should... I mean, this is conceit when you feel inferior. I'm I'm not good enough. I'm inferior to someone else, or I'm inferior in general. I'm an inferior sort of person. Conceit—that's pride. And this comes from experience. I mean, this is the point. This is what this is what frees us. We become free through understanding it on a momentary basis to stop thinking of things as entities and to start thinking of them as experiences so conceit and pride comes at the moment of the experience and if you purify that experience conceit can't arise, pride can't arise uh, the fetter of views comes when one who takes uh, the experience to be permanent and everlasting so what you see actually exists this microphone when I see my body, my hand, yes, that that is real, that hand. That's wrong view, that's view of self. Uh, when views arise, based on seeing. The fetter of doubt 
is like view, but it's an uncertainty. So when you see something and you're you're confused about it, you're confused about what's real, what's right, is it good, is it bad? What should I do about this? A big part of doubt is not knowing the path, right? Uh, an important doubt, that's a bad one, is uh, doubt about how to react to experiences, right? I get a lot of questions about people that are very specific. When this happens to me, what should I do? Um, you know, thinking that this specific situation has to have an explanation, a solution. When this happens in my life, when that happens in my life. Um, and and that's not the sort of answer that I'm capable of giving or that, that's even really important to give, ultimately. I mean, it's hard to stomach in some cases, but the ultimate the answer really is to be mindful. It's not about so this this doubt about finding an answer is 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 a problem because it it misunderstands the solution to to problems, and the solution is not to fix things or to find a solution. The solution is to let go of them. It's the only solution because otherwise you're always fixing. You're always trying to change and control. The fetter of desire for existence is for one who thinks uh, when, when experiencing seeing or hearing or smelling, thinks about experiencing these in the future. You know, finding some way to find, to live a life uh, where, where these things might be more, more attainable. So that even works in this life, thinking of, you know, you see someone's mansion and you think of, wow, I'm going to be, tr try my best to get rich. This is called desire for becoming. Because you have not the desire for the sense directly, but you have a desire to become rich or, or so on. Ostensibly so that you can experience these senses, these senses more or more purely. So that when you see that mansion, you'll have a sense, it's me, it's my mansion. A desire for non-existence. Right, they're all mixed up. Aren't we missing one? Sensuality, aversion, pride, views, doubt, desire for existence, rites and rituals, envy, envy? And avarice, ignorance. Why am I? These aren't the ten fetters that I know. Oh well, it's a different list. Anyway, um, whatever. 
rites and rituals. So rites and rituals is a fetter. Maybe they're just wrong, tr weird translations. I'm not sure. Rites and rituals. So, um, well, this is uh, rites and rituals means um, attachment to practices and and precepts that are useless. Uh, and ultimately, it comes down to this. It comes down to the senses. We, you know, we talk about uh, st take a very simple, primitive example as people who do a rain dance, thinking it's going to make it rain. Again, it's so that you can have certain experiences. I mean, it's not how we think about it, but if we think about it in this way, we understand that if it rains, all that happens is there are going to be different experiences. Um, we think that if we pray to God or pray to Buddha, we'll get rich, let's say. Well, if we get rich, it's only going to be different experiences. So our rites and rituals ultimately come down to our desire for certain experiences. And when we start to see this, and because we start to see that experiences are impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable, we lose our, our attachment to any kind of uh, practices or precepts, doing this, not doing this, thinking it's going to bring some benefit. Even religious practices, uh, because we. St Another thing is, well, specifically with this, is um, because we see experience and because we start to look at the senses and the, the aggregates as they truly are, uh, we come to see that these practices and precepts are useless. That we, you know, if you ask, someone asked me just today, I think, um, was it you that asked me? No, someone asked me today about, uh, oh no, it was, yeah, another meditator, about karma. In, in other, in Hinduism, there's a way of, and even some Buddhist teachers who I would say are not very Buddhist, would say there are ways of doing special rituals that um, can mitigate or or reduce your karma. And I said, well, there are certain things, but it's it's scientific, really. I mean, you do certain things, and and they cultivate wholesomeness. And wholesomeness, of course, fights against it. It counteracts unwholesomeness. Um, and because you start to see th the way things really work. You you think you realize how absurd it is to rely upon magic, unexplainable uh, solutions to your problems. So this is what we when we talk about practices and precepts, we often mean religious practices that have no basis in reality, and these go away. You know all this magical thinking and ritual Buddhism. You'll see a ritual for what it is, and you'll say, okay, that's a ritual. It's it's useful because it focuses my mind, but only. Conventionally, if you dance in the rain, you just if you dance for rain, you just get tired. That's the result. Uh, if you chant, well, your your voice gets hoarse. But you know, chanting can focus your mind on what's useful, what's wholesome. Focus on the Buddha's teaching. It can give you confidence. All that's good, but that's what's real about it. And understanding that allows you. Well, it's so important because it. it clears up all this doubt about what is right practice and what is wrong practice. Envy. Why is envy in here? Envy 
<laughs> wishes uh, for other people not to get these things. You know, when you see something, you want to be the only one. Sometimes we're proud because I saw this, uh, but uh, not wanting other people to get the things that you have. Really, a nasty mind state. And avarice is for one who wishes for the things that belong to others. When you see something that belongs to someone else. So all these different ways. This is what the commentary says. The ways in which basically it, we attach. But our attachment is based on experiences. When we talk about the five aggregates, the Buddha called them the Panchupadana Kanda the five aggregates, things that we cling to, or the five types of clinging, clinging to the five aggregates, clinging to these five, clinging to experience, really. And that's what's important about explaining this here. When you put the aggregates and the senses together, you understand a framework for reality that's practical. I mean, this seems very theoretical, maybe, but it's very much based, meant to be based on our actual practice. Right now we are seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting, feeling and thinking. Moment after moment these things come and go. When you're able to see that, see what's really happening, it frees you from so much delusion and misunderstanding and, and complication. Because you see it's quite simple. And it's futile to try and worry about this or that or it's futile or un, un, inconsequential when in the end everything is just going to be seeing, hearing, smelling tasting, feeling and thinking and eventually this is what you come to through the practice this is what leads you through the knowledges eventually to see everything just as it is and then let go of it all because it's of no consequence So that's the Dhamma for tonight. Two more sections. Oh, and we've still got questions. wonder when I'm going to have answered them all. Now it looks like we get, I mean, we often get people, we can't expect everyone to have heard the answers I've given, so it's okay to ask repeat questions if you haven't heard the answer already. How can we contribute to Siri Mangalo? Um, well, if, you, if you're on the site, and this is a day ago, well, then you're here. Um, I think there's a support group on Facebook, Siri Mangalo supporters. Look up Siri Mangalo supporters, or just contact us through the website. Uh, we have a Slack. The way we, we run things is uh, we, we have a, a Slack community. And that's our volunteers. We have an admin group. It's where all of the administration for our organization goes on. Is on Slack.com. So you have to get on our Slack. I think it's, I don't know if you can just join. It's SiriMangaloTeam.Slack.com. There's always lots of things to do, I think. Well, there's always some things to do. Otherwise, Robin gets st stuck with lots of work, and I hope that doesn't happen 
After doing meditation and learning the Buddha's teaching for months, it seems that everything we think about samsara is just like matrix. Everything is just a concept. And my question is, which power or thing influences or running this wheel of samsara that we are into? Uh, we don't have any belief in such a power. That belief is extraneous to experience. So we don't concern ourselves with that sort of belief. It's not something that plays itself out. It's not something that you uh, experience. It's something that conjecture we conjecture. But it's a good question because it is an important conjecture, but it is just conjecture. It has nothing to do with actual experience. What to do about a family member of adult age who lives with you that inhibit, inhibits your practice due to constant greed, sloth, and general sense of entitlement? How do you go about letting go of something that's in your face daily, thus reintroducing the trigger of aversion constantly? Good question. But again, it's one of these questions about, it's, it's a meta question, M-E-T-A, it's not the real question. I mean, the only answer is mindfulness, uh, but the... So the, the context, that's the context, and your, your answer is going to be, have to be what can I do to be more mindful? And you know, maybe the answer that you're having a heart you're struggling to come to is that you have to leave, find some way to leave, uh, or or maybe an answer that you're not able to come to because you're in you're stuck in a situation. But with an understanding of of it as being a problem, or it as being. Uh, what it is really not a problem but being what it is and uh, and thus not letting it inhibit your practice our meditation isn't uh, our practice isn't about finding a an ideal situation it's about being mindful with whatever situation we find ourselves in and I know for some situations that's extremely difficult, much more difficult than other situations. But the point of it is that trying to force and run away from situations it, is it creates a trigger itself, creates a habit itself. And sometimes when it's time to leave, you leave. But um, cultivating the stress about the situation that you're in that's a much bigger problem than the actual situation um, I, I don't think it's so much about finding an answer to what to do about X person as it is about being mindful and as a result interacting with the situation because again you're dealing with a concept of this person that's just a concept that person doesn't exist what exists are experiences of seeing hearing smelling and you put them all together and you you call it that person um, but when you see it as experiences it changes and they, as a result they change and they come and they go but um, Certainly, there's room for there's room for changing your situation. Ideally, finding an easy situation to start with, so you can build up 
build up resistance. I mean, that's why we have these meditation centers. They're ideal, they're useful, they're wonderful for a real dedication to the practice. Um, but, you know, mindfulness will get you to such a place. As the more mindful you are, the more attracted you will be and the more you'll clear your schedule to find a way to to get to a meditation center without even really trying it's just going to happen through being more mindful you will be surrounded by meditators and people who are interested in meditation eventually it's not an easy answer to these sorts of questions and I think you know intrinsically there's not intrinsically there the question has to be more about based on mindfulness if there is no soul so how can reborn possible or how it works I've done videos on this and I've given talks on it and, but again I said repeat questions are okay um, nothing is ever reborn there's only experience and experience arises and ceases every moment so that doesn't change when the body breaks up because the body isn't real anyway the body has nothing to do with or the, the body is not a part of experience it's just a concept is it okay to doubt alien agendas? Well, what's this? Oh, alien. Uh, or influences we absorb in our lives. Would this be a relative relative to non-self? A TV commercial telling us we must have something. Ah, right, so we're talking in the context of doubt. Is it okay to doubt them? It's okay. You don't want to become a suspicious or a... Uh, what's the word? A cynical person, right? You don't want to fall into cynicism where you Im immediately think the worst in people. Uh, so, I mean, it's something you have to protect yourself with. But again, I think, you know, a lot of these sorts of questions, or there, uh, there's an aspect of them that relates to your duty as a, as a societal individual. You know, functionally, you have to protect your wealth, not because you're greedy, but because, well, it's... Th it's the only way to keep your life going as it is if you just let people come and take away all your money well you'd end up off in the forest as a beggar or something which if you're not ready for that then functionally you need to protect your wealth and so being suspicious is functionally important but that's just functional you just say well look I can't believe what you're saying because if I believed everyone then someone would cheat me it's not that you, you know, it's not that I have anything against you. You see what I mean? So functional doubt is important. Saying, look, and it's a matter of assessing the like likelihood. Instead of just, okay, I believe everything you say, you say, okay, well, I can't really believe you um, without further evidence because that's a exceptional claim that requires exceptional evidence, that kind of thing. So functional doubt is certainly okay. And by functional, it just means not where you're actually uh, wrestling with it, but where you're clear that you don't know, and there's an uncertainty to that. And, you know, that's okay with that. I mean, I don't know how many... I don't know what the population of Canada is. I think it's around 30 million, but I don't know exactly. I'm uncertain. So you can say I have doubt about that. When someone has says, hey, this product will cure all your problems, I don't know that. 
and I shouldn't believe it without any evidence. You know, just because one person says X doesn't mean I should. It's not a good reason to believe something, right? One who meditates may encounter others who claim to meditate or who claim to wish to meditate but who don't lend ear. These people don't come to the fruit of the practice. When one sees such a living case, how might it be made clear that the mixing of practices fosters confusion and not clarity? Or that a spoken wish with no accompany action belies a self-deception? Well, again, it's, it's not your job to... to... Um, fix other people's problems don't worry about your own practice is I think useful advice in this sort of instance a lot of questions like this about how to how to help X person well that's not really the, the goal right? This is, it shouldn't really be our question because we're not um, we're not responsible for each other if someone asks you and says, hey, look, my practice isn't going anywhere, well, then you tell them the truth. You say, you know, practicing one tradition and, and really dedicating yourself to it and actually practicing it, well, that's what will lead to progress. But it's not because you want them to take it up. That leads to stress. That leads to disappointment on your part. So don't don't we don't concern ourselves so much with trying to fix other people's problems. It's just not it's not the duty of a human. Does Buddhism believe in eternal life? We've read that in Buddhism don't believe in a soul. Well, Buddhists don't believe anything. You know, the the being exists in the first place. So uh, the be the and so no, they don't cease to exist at Nirvana. Nirvana, there's uh, there's freedom, so there's the uh, cessation of suffering. Those aspects of experience or those uh, the aggregates cease without remainder, and that what that means is, see, the aggregates arise in one moment. So it's not that those cease; they they cease anyway. It's that they cease and nothing else arises. There's no new experience. The next experience doesn't come. The next experience is, for lack of a better word, nirvana. Well, it is the word. How do you deal with laziness? Mm. Associate yourself with people who are not lazy. There's actually a... I didn't go through these because it would have taken a long time, but in this the five... I'll go back now. The five hindrances. He gives a list for each of them. Six things which ca cast out laziness. The seeing of the reason of laziness, oh no, seeing the reason of laziness and the fact of eating too much or gluttony. The gluttony doesn't just have to do with food, it can have to do with sense desires of any sort. You get lazy and complacent when you have too much of a good thing. Uh, another way of overcoming it is changing postures. So when you're sitting and you feel lazy, get up and do walking. The third is reflecting on the perception of light. So I don't sure this one is one that the Buddha actually mentioned but, but I'm not sure what it is whether it's something envisioning light in the mind or whether it's turning on the light or going looking at the light or the stars or the sun or something I don't know staying in the open so yeah go outside 
go somewhere that's big and expansive and gives you energy uh, sympathetic and helpful companionship of the good so being associated with people who are energetic and talk that is stimulating so uh, having talking to people about things that are arousing energy listening to stories and 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 sharing experiences and that kind of thing that encourages you inspires you being inspired to practice There you go. That's a better answer than I could come up with. Nibbana is anatta, but not anicca and dukkha. Is this the same in regards to the Dhamma? Uh, the Buddha's Dhamma? Buddha's Dhamma is, is just concepts, and concepts are. Concepts can be eternal. They are none of those. They are controllable mm. concepts don't don't really exist right so the buddha's dhamma is just a concept it doesn't exist what actually exists is the senses so in the context of the dhamma it's the thinking about the dhamma the thoughts exist and those thoughts are so the thing there are three three different types of things there's experiences arisen experiences seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling thinking there's Nibbana, and then there's concepts. These are basically the three things that we have. The f only the first two really exist. Concepts don't exist. But the Buddha's Dhamma is a concept. And what actually exists is moments of experience and expression. When the Buddha teaches, there's the moment of the sound arising and so on. And all of that is impermanent suffering and non-self. Nibbana is... Uh, non-self, but it's not, it's not impermanent and it's not suffering. The concepts, I'm not sure what you can say about them. I don't think the three characteristics really apply because they don't actually exist. So they don't have characteristics. And that's all. So thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.